had a very informative conversation with Stephen Pfeiffer, president of Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions and a former Malcolm Baldridge Excellence Award winner about Revenue Cycle. And he gave some really good, insightful tips on how to measure the efficacy of a business unit that you might be in charge of. Some real concrete yet simple ways to think about it and to be able to measure and track how well it's doing. And he also talked a little bit about some of the common mistakes that people make when they're trying to buy RCM services. And so it was really nice to have an insider's perspective on this most important part of healthcare. So enjoy and get out your notepads. I think you're going to learn a few things. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. I'm very happy today to have Stephen Pfeiffer join the show. Stephen is the president of Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, and Encompass is a 30-year-old firm providing unique solutions to healthcare organizations around the country. Encompass processes hundreds of millions of dollars of claims annually, and so Stephen has a very good insight into the ins and outs of revenue cycle management. But maybe more importantly, in addition to that specific focus, Stephen was part of an executive team that won a Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award for their work in the healthcare system. And as most of the listeners to this podcast know, that's no small feat. That's hard to achieve. And so in doing so, it speaks to Stephen's deep understanding of how to build teams uh, to exceed goals and to meet expectations. So Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you taking the time today. I have to tell you, you're the second guest that we've had that has achieved that award. So I'm going to say that we're just getting the cream of the crop. Tell me a little bit about how is 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 winning that award as hard as as they make it seem? Is it is it a pretty rigorous undertaking? Yeah, it's pretty rare air. For example, with the health system down in Fredericksburg, Texas, where I was a part of winning that award. That was not the first time that they applied for the award. What they ended up doing was they, frankly, were not successful in a couple attempts. So what they did was specifically address the weaknesses that led to their initial failures. And one of them was, in fact, with their employed medical group engagement. So that, in mm. fact, is, is where I was employed as a consultant to help them through that Baldridge push. It's interesting because I know a little bit about your background and I know that you did work as a consultant, you've worked in healthcare systems, you've worked running practices in a lot of different capacities. And in that capacity, you've seen revenue cycle from kind of every different angle and perspective, right? And so I'm curious, based on that overall experience that you've had, how can you help our listeners evaluate an RCM team. So almost everybody that listens to this either has an in-house team or they're purchasing 
those services from an outside group, right? But they all have in common is this understanding that RCM has the singular and unique ability to derail an enterprise, no matter if it's a system size or a practice. So what are some of the ways that you've gone about evaluating the efficacy or you could explain to our, our listeners how to think about that? I think initially it really comes down to what is the data showing? None of this conversation would be possible unless some type of data exists. And frankly, that may be the first red flag is if your data is either non-existent or very weak. Having limited data does not allow you to really fully flesh out whether the issue is internal, if you do your own billing, or external, if you, you, know, you know, move that to a third-party vendor. The reality is it does start with the data, and we'll be speaking to much of that as we go forward today, I'm assuming. For example, the collection rate, whether it be net collections, et cetera, you know, that most fees are based off of, that really is going to be the culmination of the effort. So if your net collection rate is in line with your regional or national norms, you have a fairly decent ability to assume that the rest of the operation, or at least a good portion of it, is within typical limits. If, however, you start the conversation, you find that your net collections are not within range, you'll obviously want to dig deeper and find out why. Well, that raises two things, right? Because if your net collections are not within the range, that doesn't necessarily mean you know exactly where the answer is. And and let's hold that thought about how we dig deeper. But if we go to net collections and you're in the range, I would still argue, and I know you would argue this too, is that that still means you have to have other metrics because maybe you have the potential to be an outlier and be in the top decile and not be in the range, right? Just being in the range means nothing's terribly broken, but it doesn't mean it's working at top efficiency. So if that's true, what are some of the other metrics that people should be looking at? Let's talk about that reporting because that's the first place you have to start. What are some of the key things they should be looking at after they're looking at their net collections? I think a hot topic today is clearly denials. If the denial rate itself, the initial denial rate, is within norm, which is typically 10% or less, then again, it doesn't mean that the forensic sort of exploration stops. It just means that that portion is likely not to be causing your problems. Uh, I think you stated it correctly that even if net collections look okay, that does not indicate that you just stop and, and sort of high five yourself. What that indicates is you should look deeper and deeper, regardless if you find problems or that you find no problem. Quite honestly, I think I spend more time looking and digging into those environments that I've consulted with where the initial data is strongly suggestive that you know everything is looking okay. But frankly, there's room for improvement in any enterprise. And for that reason, that just, you sort of continue the search in other areas. So when we talk about denials, I know that you're a big proponent because I've talked with you previously about this, of really understanding what type of denials that you're getting, right? And so there's a stratification of the type denial type. And I think that many, even third-party vendors, but certainly a lot of in-house teams don't understand or don't go through the work that's required to stratify all of the different types of denials because some are actionable and some aren't, right? And you want to know which is which to 
I would think, to know where to put your energy. So what are the some of the broad categories of denial? So we understand that we need to look at our net collections. Then we want to look at our denials. And as we take another step further, we're saying, hey, denial should be looked at kind of in some of these categories. What would that be? You're exactly right. Let me turn back just for a second, though, to set the stage a little bit better. Yep. Inside the denial environment, what you really have is it's common to express things in terms of initial denials. However, an initial denial ultimately does not necessarily equate to non-payment. So it's much better to look at things sort of in categories, for example. You would have an initial denial. You may have a partial pay denial where something denied, you ultimately resubmitted with additional info, et cetera, received partial payment. And then the ultimate in my mind is what are your zero pay denials? That is where you've absolutely failed to collect on that particular claim. So with zero pay denials, it's a much better gauge overall of indicating how successful your platform and your billing is to collecting dollars versus the initial denial rate. The initial denial rate oftentimes is wildly different than a zero pay denial rate. A zero pay denial rate that sits at around, let's say one to 2% is highly suggestive that you have a really well-run enterprise in fighting and combating some denials that either should not have been denied initially or the insurance company needed additional information and there was a breakdown, let's say, in another area of the RCM billing cycle. So circling back to answer your question specifically, the best places that I've seen really break down the denials into one of several categories, and that can be 10, 13, or more. And they would really be able to point a finger very precisely at any point along the continuum of RCM. It starts obviously at the front. You know, demographics are collected when you're uh, scheduling an appointment. And if those demographics do not contain the elements that the insurance companies require, whether it be a group number, whether it be, you know, an, an identifier for that particular patient, et cetera, those things may not pass an initial sort of vetting by your fiscal intermediary or the payer themselves. The other areas that I look for are you know, deeper into the clinical cycle. You know, has there been appropriate prior authorization, for example? Properly structured denials will be able to precisely pinpoint where the breakdown occurred. Was it at the front desk? Was it with the nurse for prior auth? Was it with the provider in selecting the CPT and ICD-10, for example, or a modifier? Uh, also, you know, the denial should clearly be able to articulate whether the breakdown was on our coding or something else downstream. So the bottom line is those are just a handful of categories that are helpful, but are precisely able to be sort of identified through the denial. And that allows course correction and conversation either with the client or internally if you're doing the billing in-house, where you can shore those areas up and prevent future denials. I think that's really important. It's not sexy or exciting, but it's important. And it's important because the denials are really your dashboard a look into how the whole revenue cycle process is working. And if you set that up correctly in the beginning, i.e. the categories, as you so articulately put it, 
it allows us to go back at any given time and look and say, how's the machine running? And I see an anomaly here. And so that tells me, like you said, it's in this area or this area. And then you can go and, and work those processes. My experience in running organizations has been that what I call organizational drift happens all the time. You set up the greatest process and system in the world inevitably, and it takes you months to get everyone to agree and understand and set the system up. And then inevitably, one patient comes through that system, whatever it is, clinical, business, and there's a one-off and somehow miraculously, the one-off now becomes the new norm. And so that drift happens. It just happens. And, and, and this denials is the dashboard that I think many physician owners don't spend enough time looking at. They just assume that it's working okay. And so I think your point is is spot on and I, I wanted to emphasize it, but I want to go back and, and, and have you hammer home another point. This zero pay denial, I think, is really important. And, and tell me if you've had the same experience, but when I was running a large system or a practice or a large practice or even a small practice, all too often, denials would come through and they were never quote unquote worked. And so it was kind of, we're not going to chase it. And this was whether or not I had an in-house team or a third party team. The third party didn't want to chase it for their reasons, which maybe you can elucidate. But tell me if you've encountered that same thing. And that's why it's so important because you don't know what you don't know, right? I don't know when claims are being stuck in a drawer and not chased, but zero pay denial should give me some insight into that, right? Am I overstating this? No, not at all. I, I think the zero pay is a great indicator, again, of the prowess of the RCM itself, whether that's a third party or internal, to really effectuate payment. And, you know, for example, one of the, the cool metrics that I like to, to sort of suggest to some management and C-suite people is using a ratio between initial denial and zero pay because it is that effective at sort of bird dogging how your, your process is efficient or not. But let me back up and sort of be a bit more specific. Let's face it, with an RCM, we really don't drive a significant portion of the insurance market. The insurance companies do. And I think that's this, the, the same story for physicians themselves. To a large degree, we're all beholden to the industry itself. And we have not had a deck that's been stacked in, you know, favor for, for quite a while. For example, when a denial is, is given to us from a payer, it's often written, as we all know, in a language that can be best described probably as from R2D2. It's quite <laughs> unclear as far as what that denial is really for. So part of what I think we're trying to elucidate here is the fact that the best RCMs will have a process where they can take that R2D2 denial reason code and articulate it in a more clear fashion for those physicians who don't understand denials to really understand. And what they end up doing is simply put into two buckets typically. This has been my experience and it's been very effective. First is, is it an actionable denial or is it informational? If it's strictly informational, that is not something that should require or get a lot of your time from your staff or yourself or your management team. However, 
if it is in fact an actionable denial, which means if we do something, if we resubmit with X, Y, or Z piece of information, we will have this uh, successful payment. So I think it's in that context that it's important to understand how zero pay denials are, are really a, a good gauge, but it really stems from the fact that work must be done upfront whether it's proprietary or the industry itself kinds of come together, you know, through RCMs to identify denials first and foremost as actionable or not. Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions provides full suite IT managed services and security solutions in order for companies to operate successfully in the current highly connected environment. Has your company chosen to increase remote working capacity? Has your company been looking to transition more of its IT infrastructure to the cloud? The Encompass team has helped numerous client partners adapt their business infrastructure to be more remote friendly while improving their security posture. Our team of information technology professionals will test your team with friendly phishing attempts and help you train your team to follow more secure behaviors to protect your business and reputation. With industry-leading service level response times, Encompass's IT team will help keep your enterprise operating smoothly and in a position to minimize the inevitable attack. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Information Technology, and click the Learn More button to schedule a discovery call. I think that's it's a good point you make. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking and, and going back in my ex life experience and, and thinking to myself, I'm going to hazard a guess and tell me if you think I'm way out of, out of line here, but I would hazard a guess that if we went and did a, an audit of every independent practice and maybe even some that are hospital owned and ask them how often or if, in fact, they're even running a zero pay denial report. I would guess 75 or 80% of them would say they're not, maybe even higher. Do you think that's right? I think it's certain that the majority definitely are not aware or really paying attention to zero pay. I think once you get to a level where infrastructure wise, like a health system, hospital, et cetera, they probably have people paying sure. attention, but not likely in the group practice setting. And I'm hopeful that's one thing that people will take away from this that you're helping us understand is get that report and start understanding it and reading it. And it kind of leads me to my next thought, though, is that so there's this challenge, right? If I have an in-house team, I've got an RCM director or a manager who's running that division, and I'm trusting that they, in fact, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But and the same is true for an outside firm. But an a point I'm trying to make, and I want to ask you how you solve this problem, is that you know if if I got an RCM manager who says, yeah, I'm not chasing after these anything under you know a hundred dollars, and the RCM company has this kind of attitude of, yeah, we, we chase it all, but they really only put resources on the big dollars because it's not as efficient or effective for them to chase the small dollars. If you're an owner of a practice or a surgery center, or how do you know that that's going on? How do you know that in essence, yes, the zero pay denials will show me what is being paid or what isn't and what percentage, but how do I know that in fact, and the $200 claim that we got paid 50, they're not just saying we'll call it good, even though there's another 125 they could go chase, right? And so I've found that to be a real problem in the industry. It's this doggedness or a lack thereof. 
I think one of the, the first places that they would probably have some success looking to ensure that either is not happening, I think in the context that you pre- presented this, would be in your allowables that you have with each of your payer by CPT or code or whatever. So for example, if, if a 99213 office visit was expecting to be reimbursed at uh, $125, for example, and you find that your average over a year or whatever time frame is something closer to 115 or 110, you really have to step back and say, what is causing that? And frankly, with something as commonplace as that particular code, anything less than the full allowable should be very, very rare. So again, if you take a time frame like you know a year and look backwards, you would expect near full payment almost all the time. Anything less is a clear red flag that somebody is not following up on something. And it is a high confidence presumption that it was a denial that they simply didn't follow up. Those are real troubling for you know folks who own the business, like a physician, to make sure that the folks that they have working for them are in fact looking at the nickels and dimes as much as the dollars. And, and frankly, I would add caution to you know anyone who does have suspicion that the nickels and dimes are not being looked after, they need to understand that frankly, having a process where you go after a lower dollar CPT is not actually very time consuming. That's part of the learning process when you set up these environments where you have your denial reason codes broke down by actionable, non-actionable. You follow that up with the actionable ones that can be assigned to precise teams based on what that denial reason was. So a code that suggests that it was a problem at the front desk would immediately be assigned automatically with no hands on this, where the people who created or allowed that problem to happen are the ones fixing it. So there's a feedback loop. Conversely, if you find out that it is the physician, you know, a sendback, for example, would identify through the coding team that we probably need to either have an alternate code selected or the like. But again, it reinforces a feedback loop that we can have course correction that doesn't just keep getting fixed, but in fact, reduces the overall denials as we go forward. So to encapsulate kind of up until this point, it starts with developing an, an appropriate and uh, robust reporting package that is delivered to key stakeholders. And that reporting package has to be then benchmarked by region or practice or some combination thereof so that there's identifiable and mutually agreed upon target metrics for that we can measure performance against, right? We should be doing better or at least as good as this group or this cohort. And it leads me kind of to now that we've set the stage for um, what are some of the specific things and in general, how you would look at an RCM is the role of audits. And so I'm a bit, I'll tell you, I have a bias. I'm a big believer in outside audits because if I ask the same people to do the work, to do the audit, if they're making mistakes, they may not catch them in the audit. If one would argue if they were going to, they would have caught them real time. And two, 
some humans will, don't want to do an audit that may show that they have, in fact, been maybe not chasing as hard or as good, or there's a flaw in the process that they didn't catch. Tell me if you've used audits, what you think about them, and if they're a good tool, and can they be done in-house by the same people, maybe being too tough? Yeah, I think to compare and contrast where your position is versus my experiences, I, I find great value both in internal audits as well as external. So why would that be? Internally, I, I think too few times you actually have a leadership proposing and having a policy that really relies on self-audits. So I think that, from my perspective, is where a tremendous amount of value is missed if a self-audit is in fact left out. Just having a chance for a coder, for example, to go back to work that they've done prior and look back at that, you know, not in the heat of the moment, et cetera, provides real value and allows sort of course corrections to happen naturally. They're self-identified. But as you sort of go up further the chain, obviously having audits done by managers and directors internally can very, very quickly find problems that can be course corrected right away. Now, ultimately, I agree with you. You have to have some type of external participation here. And whether that is, you know, with a formal third party that does nothing but audits or even partnering with, you know, other folks in your region where you would do their audit, potentially they would do some of yours. That kind of audit sharing is not uncommon and it's really encouraged. So for all those reasons, I find a balance of audits, both internal and external, to be the most valuable versus one or the other. And it's interesting because I, it's a great point you make about this ability to have an organic discovery of somebody's own uh, work process. I couldn't argue with that at all. And in fact, one would say that a lot of data shows that if in fact they find the mistake themselves, it's more likely that they'll develop a system to avoid it in the future and stick with that system than as opposed to it being imposed. So I think your your point is well made there. But I also hear quite frequently, and it's kind of tied into this next area I want to talk about, uh, I hear, and it's counterintuitive to me, that they don't have the time to do the audit work. We're too busy. And usually when I hear somebody say too busy, because of my background in lean, that's a red light for me. And I go, stop. That means something's broken, right? It's very rarely that the, the system is running so smooth and we've grown so much that the system is buckling under the weight. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's not the first place I look. And so there's this counterintuitive approach that, and that I think that physicians or providers too often accept because they're used to working hard too, that way they don't have the time. But maybe you can talk about some of the real dollars that are at play or as a percentage or maybe you know real dollars that when we don't stop and look at the work of the work that we could be foregoing and that extra dollars could hire another person to do nothing but audits in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think there's definitely a cost justification in, inherent in the audit. So if you look at it only from that perspective, they're certainly worth it. But I look at things a little bit more balanced perhaps where there's a, a value in just having confidence in your team, in your assumptions that their work is as good as you think it is. So when I hear those suggestions that, you know, perhaps we don't have time to do something, I look at them very, very critically as, as you just explained for the same reasons. I, I think there's good value 
in having a confirmation through an audit that our people are as good as what we think they are. But conversely, it's that opportunity for improvement that you're alluding to or additional net collections that it would materialize that often results. So for either reason, I think it's justified, but combined, that's just a real powerful message that I think you you cannot ignore. One cannot ignore the fact that there is likely going to be some missed billing opportunity through an audit. For example, the, the recent audit that was done for a large system here in Fort Collins, it materialized several hundred thousand dollars of potential enhanced billing opportunity that was missed. That is nothing to sneeze at. Even if it's a one or 2% sort of opportunity, that's a real opportunity that wouldn't have been seen prior. The flip side though, would also be what kind of liability is identified during an audit. Great point. Um, for example, overbilling happens. It's, you know, OIG speaks of this frequently. And if overbilling has happened, where either through a incorrect code choice or whatever, there's a liability that you have and a, the potential to have to return funds to that payer, either preemptively or if they find it, you know, through take back. So there's the opportunity to make more money, but there's also the opportunity to identify where you've already been paid too much, which carries a pretty heavy penalty. If in fact it's seen as something that you know shouldn't have occurred, it's a great point you make because when you add them together, it goes from you know we just found a quarter of a million dollars in revenue and we found three hundred thousand dollars in liability that would only keep growing if it wasn't corrected, and so you're talking about in any given year it's a half a million bucks, and the audit might cost somewhere between thirty and fifty thousand dollars, and so maybe 25 to 50, you know, it ranges depending on how deep and complicated and and statistically valid you need to make it. But, and I always, when I'm having these conversations, I try to turn that into a real thing for, and not an esoteric number, right? And so it's like, you know, $250,000 is a CRNA or, you know, $600,000 is another surgeon on staff. And when you put it in those terms, (laughs) all of a sudden it gets real. Right. Because for sure. You know, Mike, if if you take a look at some of the specialties uh, that are out there, for example, you know, a lot most are based off of CPT. Right. But not all like there's if you take, for example, anesthesia, you know, their compensation, their their payment is based off of units and time. So, for example, unless you do an audit where you may have what you find oftentimes is the number of units remain exactly the same for two completely different codes. So the bottom line is what appears to be a neutral or no liability is in fact still a failure from an audit perspective when you're looking at things through the the glasses of right and wrong. You know, was this done correctly, yes or no? And if the answer is no, but it happens to be net neutral from a revenue standpoint or a liability standpoint, it still reflects opportunity for improvement. And those can't be identified any other way uh, than through an audit. Encompass aims to put the provider back in control of the healthcare equation. The payer enrollment and provider privileging service takes advantage of long relationships with both private and government payers to help reduce the cost of avoidable denials. 
The largest denial class is a payer-identified credentialing error. Encompass's team focuses exclusively on satisfying the reattestation needs, maintenance of expirables, and complete taxonomy accuracy for your providers to help capture all that is due to you from each payer. Some of our current clients have seen their provider revenues increase by up to $50,000 a year by having the Encompass Payer Enrollment and Privileging Team focus on management of the intentionally complex and cumbersome payer enrollment process. Contact us today to learn more about Encompass's payer enrollment and privileging process and how we can help improve your revenue capture through strategic and focused payer enrollment management. For more information, go to encompasshds.com, select Credentialing and Payer Enrollment, and click the Learn More button to schedule a discovery call. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, as I see practices being squeezed around the country, squeezed in terms of an increased documentation burden, regulatory burdens, and decreasing reimbursement. This is like an easy, kind of an easy, no-brainer way to go find extra money that's been laying there. And so I really strongly encourage anybody to make sure that they're doing this because um, it's your money, it's their money. And if they don't take it, the insurance companies are happy to gleefully rub their hands together and say, thank you. And so you've done the work, you've invested in the infrastructure and the people and your own education. You should go and do this because I've never been part of an audit. And maybe you have, uh, you can speak to this, that hasn't found significant liability and significant revenue. Have you ever had one come back where you go all oh, that, you know, that wasn't even worth the time doing it? Never in 30 plus years. Neither. It's why I say it's a no-brainer. It's almost guaranteed. And and it is a guarantee. It's a hundred percent guarantee that the the cost of the audit will pay for itself. And so there's if there's an inaction or a frozenness, I'm I'm hopeful that people will get over that hurdle and and, and do this work. It kind of leads me to this frozenness and hurdle that I also see that I think is important. I will say in all my years of being in healthcare. I'd say of all the groups and practices and systems, of everybody that was working with a third-party vendor or even an in-house group, let me just say everybody that was doing RCM, half of them were unhappy with the results that we're getting. Either they could see it from the reports or they had this niggling feeling in there that this doesn't feel quite right. And I looked at some benchmarking and these numbers don't seem right. Yet almost all of them don't pull the trigger to make a move. So that's my thesis, either confirm or deny, and then let's talk about why you think that's the case. So I think overall, I, I would definitely agree with that premise. From my perspective, I think much of it stems back to the fact that if things are done in-house, you know, there's this familial sort of oversight that occurs where you never want to be too rough on anyone internally. And while that might be true, I think it's a necessity exploration to make sure that the work that is being performed is at the highest level. What makes an audit done by a third party, to me, really powerful is the fact that before the audit or, or before the audit is finalized, there is always a chance to interact between the professionals who perform the audit and the professionals who perform the initial work. So it is very much a peer-to-peer -peer interaction. And through that process, there is clearly agreement. 
I don't recall a time where, you know, peer to peer, there has been disagreement at the end of an audit. There's always a realization that, yep, you're right. Or, you know what, we did it this way because we never had, for example, you know, the op note available at that moment. We only had the office notes, whatever it happens to be. We can't forget that audits are done by peers. And if that interaction exists from peer to peer to either agree or deny, you know, the, the audit, it adds a tremendous amount of weight to the result. You know, it's not as if it's just a one-way discussion from the auditor to those being audited. It's always bi-directional in my experience. And because of it, that just becomes powerful. And I think that key stakeholders, people who are responsible for the decision-making are also keenly aware that if they make a change, move it from in-house to a third party or move from one third party to another, there's these horror stories of our billing got screwed up and there was no in cash flow stop. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how to manage that process if you want to move. What do you do with the stuff that's already been billed? How do you ensure that on February 1st, the new company is handling the billing and there's a clean changeover? How do you gain assurance or how would you give assurance to those practice owners who are stuck in a situation that isn't great, but they're kind of terrified, devil you know, maybe better than the one you don't? At some level, there's there's truth to that for sure. But I, I as part of any transition, uh, it, it's not a light switch flicking, you know, where one day they make the decision to to go with a new vendor or CM vendor, and then the next that that is materialized. There's this you know sort of run out period, if you will, for a while that allows discovery and exploration. So, for example, when when we have a new client, we're onboarding them over the course of typically 45 to 60 days in rare cases longer if that's what they need on their side. But during that interim period, you know, we're already looking at their historic billing. We see what kind of volumes they have for each code and diagnosis combo. And so we're we're getting tremendous insights into their their prior sort of life. The cool thing is that's the time that we get to share what we would advise and what we believe the right way to do things are. Of course, it's not going to be across the board. Nobody does everything wrong every time. But there's clearly opportunity to identify those hot spots and, and sort of shore them up, put the Band-Aid on right away. So in short, what you end up doing is you use that discovery period to create your new game plan and process for how you will bill for that particular client. It gives confidence to the client that you had the discussion before it occurred. It allows training if necessary on behalf of the physician, clinical staff, or the front desk, if that's where some of the problems are lying. And then on a go forward, once you know we are, for example, billing for a new client, we are watching those hotspots and reporting on them right from the very first month. And either, yes, we are hitting this, it's everything that we expected, you know, we've reduced these particular denials, you know, by X percent. So it becomes a natural, normal part of the conversation that's transparent for both sides. So one of the things then that somebody who's contemplating a move would be looking for would be how the onboarding process is handled by the prospective new vendors. Are they creating that Bible of we're going to do in situation X, we're going to do this in situation Y, we're going to do this. Here's our metrics that we're targeting. Here's what we think is realistic. Here's the training we're going to put in. And does that 
third party vendor also do that mini audit uh, in reviewing the uh, voluminous data to start to see trends and patterns and be able to make recommendations, right? So that's the first move. But what happens to use your example of that 45 days um, that you guys are quote unquote onboarding is nobody getting paid during that time? Well, I think during that onboard time is leading up to when we are officially billing for the new client. This assumption is that the the past RCM company is still you know handling the claims up until the cutoff date. So it's not that they're not getting paid, but I would certainly say it's it's likely they are not maximizing their their sort of revenue. Because they're still using the old vendor. Because they're still using the old vendor. Now, obviously, it's encouraged for anything that we discuss that either we can share that directly with another RCM vendor. I think in my experience, we're very collegial with each other. Or the client themselves can actually ask for certain things to change in this interim period as well. But that really is more of a relationship between them and their old vendor than anything. So it's a great point. So the idea would be that this discovery and build stage is happening behind the scenes while the old vendor is still managing claims. Then there's the switch over agreed upon once all of that discovery, due diligence and uh, process formulation has been agreed on on a specific date. And then who's handling all of the claims that were up until that point, let's just call, use my example, February 1st. So who's taking care of the money from February 1st backwards? We know the new company is, starting February 1st is gonna handle all those claims. What do you do with that bolus of money that's already been submitted? There's a couple of options, realistically. Assuming your February 1st cutover date, where we would take any claims and work that you know materialize after the start date, and the old vendor would continue working any claims right up until that. And, and I'll give you kind of a worst case example. But let's say that a patient is seen the very last day uh, before the cutover. If, if you look at this from a calendar perspective, it's literally within one day of when we're going to take over. However, that old RCM vendor is going to really follow that through. So it's going to, assuming that it's a, a patient who has insurance, you know, it will go through uh, the insurance process, and that would be paid theoretically in, in between 12 and 40 days for most and a little bit longer for other payers. And if there's a responsible patient balance from that after the ERA EOB sort of hits, then it would likely remain the responsibility through AR of the prior vendor. So those cutover dates are, are quite frankly key for both sides, both the old vendor as well as us so that we know what our responsibility is. All too often, and it is fairly common, and it's why I think, frankly, that RCM vendors do maintain really good relationships with their peers, is there is some confusion on the payment side from the payer, from the insurance. If they, for example, send us a check as the new primary biller for a clinic or an entity, and it really was from a data service that preceded when we took over, you know, rightfully, we need to turn those dollars over to the prior billing company to coordinate sort of their payment processing and posting. Reconcile. If, and vice versa. If they receive a check for a data service that is on our side of the fence, they would turn that over to us. Bottom line is it's doable in the horror stories of no money comes in and the practice goes bankrupt are 
to me, it's stuff of urban legend, really. I just, I mean, I'm not saying that you, you hire, you have a bad RCM company and you hire one that's bad or worse, that there isn't going to be problems. But I mean, someone's got to actively work to figure out how not to get any money in someplace. Yeah, I, I, I don't recall any, any situation that's approaching no money. There's, there's ways to improve, obviously, collections and rather significantly. But, you know, to use the term like no money, I just don't think that that's realistic. So I'm looking at the clock here and I've kept you uh, longer. Normally, I want to talk for 30 minutes and I figured this would be enough to talk for 40 and we're pushing 45. And so I still got more questions. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to see if you'd be willing to come back. I actually want to talk a little bit about um, AI and machine learning and how some of that's being applied and can be used in practices not you don't have to be a giant practice to get some benefits of this stuff and where it maybe still doesn't work and explore that if you'd be willing to do that oh absolutely that's actually the fun side of rcm i am more than it is happy to continue that discussion well let me do this let me say thanks um for taking us into into some of the details and actually kind of pulling the curtain back on some of the things that people can be asking for and targets that they should be looking at in terms of metrics. It's, I think it's going to be highly beneficial. And so thank you for that. Anyone who wants to contact me, please reach out to my email at spfeiffer at encompasshds.com. That is S-P-F-E-I-F-F-E-R at encompass, E-N-C-O-M-P-A-S-S-H-D-S.com. That's perfect. And thank you for uh, your time today, Stephen. And I'll look to have you back and we can talk about R2D2 in a little bit more detail. Excellent. Take care, Michael. All right. Thanks again. In talking with Stephen, I was struck by some of the points he made and the nuanced approach he had to RCM services. And it got me to thinking about a few things. Over the years, I've seen countless provider leadership slash provider executives make the same mistakes when attempting to manage or buy services outside of their experience or scope of education. They tend to default into shopping only for price and as a result, get less than ideal deals continuously. To be fair, buying and managing RCM services does not require an extensive high-end business education. It can be understood and mastered. People do it all the time. But that mastery takes time and focus. There is a price to be paid to gain that mastery. It is not as simple as buying a car. You can't just shop for price. The act of commoditizing the service based solely on the price is where the problem starts. Because like much of healthcare, there are important nuances to revenue cycle management. And in those varying shades are where the good deals are made or lost. So why does this happen? I think it starts with what we ask of our providers. We look to them to take on tasks that are complicated and detail-driven. At the same time, we limit their time by overloading them with patient care and the attendant regulatory documentation. We also reinforce the idea that their ability to become providers and skill in treating patients is fungible. That in fact, being smart in one thing makes you smart in all things. And lastly, our healthcare ecosystem does not encourage people to admit they do not know. That admission is seen as a sign of weakness and ineffectiveness. 
In an October 2019 article published in the Journal of American Medical Association, research estimated that the range of waste in our healthcare system was between $760 and $935 billion annually. You heard me right, between $760 and $935 billion annually. That's 25% of our total healthcare spending for the country. To put that number in perspective, that range is larger than the annual nominal GDP of every country in Africa, every country in South America except one, and most countries in Europe. We waste more dollars on healthcare than those countries produce in a whole year. And like all uncorrected financial issues, they happen in such a way as to make them hard to spot. They come at us incrementally over time in small, ill-informed initial decisions that accumulate over time. And that inability to spot them or know in the beginning what the long-term consequence of the decision is where the waste happens. Collectively, we have to resist the urge to simplify complex issues down to price and allow our decision makers and leaders time that they need to focus and establish the mastery over the subject. That'll allow them to make good deals and eliminate waste for the enterprise and the system as a whole. You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.